So again, just giving my default claimer as always, I am a teacher, not a preacher. So if this sounds like teaching, it's because it is. We're going to be talking about the test today. And that test begins in Genesis 3. Very familiar passage of scripture. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruits of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This very familiar passage of scripture, the fall of humanity, the first test presented to humans, and we failed. Why did we fail? Because Satan appeals to certain natures, to certain aspects of human nature. First, he gets us to doubt the word of God. Is that really what God said? Are, are you sure? But look at the fruit. It's so delicious. Look how beautiful it is, how pleasing to the eyes. It will make you wise. God is holding out on you. God has something that he has that you don't. God is this killjoy. He wants to keep you from having something. There's better over here. The grass is greener on the other side. And if you just do this one thing, you can have it too. You can be like God. And so they eat. And so they fail the test. This is the test that is constantly before humanity. And it has been replayed down through the centuries again and again from ancient times all the way to modernity today. Right? That is the test. Will humans follow God's will or their own desires? Will they obey the wisdom of God or the wisdom of men? Will we abide in the Son's words or will we abide in the serpent's? This is the test that is ever before us. It is one that we face on a daily basis. Sometimes it is small, sometimes it is large. But we face this test on a daily basis. Most of you know enough history, most of you know enough Bible to know what humans have chosen more often than not. Okay? Over and over again, we have been like our ancestors, Adam and Eve. We have chosen death. And their choice brought death and suffering into the world. And when we talk about death in this talk, I, want to be, I need you to expand your definition. I'm not just talking about physical death. I am talking about the death of a dream, the death of a goal, the death of a relationship, the death of something that is important to you. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's a wish. Maybe it's just something you have deep inside of you. Maybe it's an emotion. Maybe it was a hope. Maybe it was a close relationship. As King Solomon put it, um, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the, in the end, it is the way of death. We do things that we think are going to lead us to life and success, to joy, to give us what we want. And there might actually be some truth in that in the short term. We might actually get some positive benefit in the immediate, instant gratification, if you will. But the long-term effect of that is suffering and death. It has always been that way. 
Um, this is our main text this morning. You can follow in your Bibles, or you can, uh, it's on the screen behind me. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 24. Um, David is on the run. He's, he's out in the wilderness. He's down uh, by the Dead Sea wilderness in the region of Engedi. And Saul is after him. And this is where the story picks up. Now, after Saul had returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel, and he went to look for David and his men in the region of the, of the rocks of the wild goats. More on that in a minute. So Saul came to the sheepfold along the road where there was a cave, and he went inside to relieve himself. And David and his men were hiding in the recesses of the cave. And so David's men said to him, This is the day about which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hands, so that you may do to him what seems good in your eyes. David's men are putting a test before him. They have interpreted the word of God that this is it. This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. There's Saul. He's just a little ways down the cave, taking care of business. He's in the second most vulnerable position a person can be in to attack, sleeping being the first. You can go up there and... Kill him, and you'll be king, David. This is what God promised you. Just go up there. It's easy. It's literally shooting fish in a barrel. Just go get him. Do what seems right in your eyes. Now, this should immediately begin to invoke Genesis 3, especially if you are an ancient Hebrew reader. Engedi is this beautiful region, arid, desert, very Arizona-like, um, right next to the Dead Sea. Um, Lots of caves. It's a great place to hide. However, in the midst of the valley around the area of Engedi, there is a spring. It is a beautiful spring. Um, wild goats go there, and humans in their original naming of things. Um, hey, look, there's a, wild, there's, there's a spring. Oh, look, there's goats drinking from it. What should we call it? We'll call it Goat Spring, or in Hebrew, Engedi. If you want to slowly click through some of the pictures. It is a beautiful, beautiful, lush place. Um, if you go there today, this is what you'll see. It is literally an oasis in the desert. It is, a, it is a piece of Eden, just this green, lush area surrounded by wilderness. And this is where David was hiding in some caves nearby. And yes, wild goats still drink from the, from the spring today. Um, it, it is an amazing, amazing place. Now, you kind of lose this in English because the word just shows up as Engedi. Now, to refresh your school memories a little bit, anagrams are a word. When you rearrange a word, you get a new word. So if I take the word and I rearrange the letters, I make new words with them, right? So if you want to bring up some examples for me. So if I take the word angel and I swap two letters, I get angle. If I take deliver and I just completely reverse it, I get the word reviled. Okay, um, if I look, bring up some more examples for me. Um, if you rearrange the letters of night, you get thing. If you rearrange the letters of the eyes, you can make the words they see. Works out well. And my personal favorite, as a teacher, having just spent two months on vacation, um, if you take vacation time, you can rearrange all those letters to say, I am not active, which was awesome for these last two months. However, a very cool one in Hebrew, the letters that spell Garden of Eden, Gan Hadan, 
and the letters that spell Engedi are the exact same letters in Hebrew, just rearranged. It's very cool. So if, if you are Hebrew, reading this text in ancient Hebrew, and you come to this passage, David is hiding in Engedi, and it looks almost like the spelling of the Garden of Eden, it's going to start triggering some things in your mind, like, oh, this is a test. In Gedi, that area where all the rich people go, it's like the Martha's Vineyard of ancient Israel, where they go and hang out. That oasis in the desert, just like Eden was. David's there, hiding, and Saul is coming for him. And now David has an opportunity to kill him and take that which was promised, which God had promised. So David is confronted with a test. Will you bring death so that you may have life? the life that was promised to you? Or will you wait and trust God? Adam and Eve's forbidden fruits, the text says it was a delight to the eyes. David's fruit, the death of his enemy, the death of Saul, as his men said to him, do what seems good in your eyes. It's the same vocabulary. At least in Hebrew it is, for sure. Um, I think some of your translations in English might say, do what you think is right, I think is what some of the modern translations say. But do what seems good in your eyes. It's the same vocabulary. It's the same word. Just letters swapped around a little bit. Message is clear to the Hebrew readers of their time. This is a Genesis 3 test for David. And it's, it's, it's hinted at subtly, but it is there. And that is the question before David right now, right? Will David be patient? Will he trust God's promise to deliver the kingdom to him, the kingdom of Israel into his hands? Or will he try to do it on his own, right? Will he do what humans have done for centuries? Will he use violence and scheming and intrigue and try and cheat his way to the top like so many before him because they did not trust the will of God, the timing of God, or the goodness of God? And they wanted it now on their own. We see many examples of this in Scripture, right? Abraham, he could have trusted God. He could have waited. Now I get it. Sarah's in her 90s. She's like 50 years past her ability to have a child by natural means. But God promised an heir from Sarah. But neither he nor she trusted God. And so he takes Hagar, the foreigner. Her name literally means foreigner. Um, The Egyptian. He takes her in hand, literally and figuratively. And he gets her pregnant and they have a child. And from Ishmael will come all of the Arab nations. How much bloodshed, how much war and violence has happened between the Jews and the Arabs over the last three, 4,000 years because of Abraham's impatience? How many wars could have been avoided between the Jews and the Muslims if Abraham had just trusted God in his timing? Jacob did not trust God. He said God gave his mother the prophecy right before they were born, right? The elder will serve the younger, but they didn't trust God. So what does he do? He pretends to be his brother, Esau, and he steals the birthright from their blind father. And then he has to run for his life because his brother wants to kill him. He didn't trust God's timing, so he schemed his way to get it himself. In the story of Ruth and Naomi, now praise God, he redeemed that story. But the premise of that story is Naomi and her family go to Moab, a foreign country. They leave the promised land. They leave Bethlehem. 
because they did not trust God. And while they're in that foreign land, her sons and her husband die. If they had stayed, they probably wouldn't have died. Now, yes, God was able to redeem that situation. He brought Ruth the Moabitess, and he, he redeemed that with Boaz later on, and ultimately we get Jesus from that. So praise God for that. So yeah, God did what, what he normally does. He takes the things that we screw up really bad, and he redeems it for good. So, yes. But still, they did not trust God's goodness and provision. In all of these stories, and so many others, people do what they think is going to lead to life and to success. But all it does in the end, it, it, the results are always the same. Death and failure when we try to do it on our own, right? And I don't, again, I don't mean just physical death. I, can, I mean the death of an idea, the death of a goal, the death of a hope, the death of a dream, the death of a relationship. Something that was going to be yours, or maybe a career even, something that you had worked hard for, something that, but you saw a shortcut and you took it, and then it blew up in your face. Moses put it this way in the final chapters of Deuteronomy, right before he passed away and the Israelites walked into the promised land. He gave them this final warning before he died. If you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments, his statutes and his rules, then you shall live. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, and you are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you will surely perish. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Friends, choose life. Choose the author of life. Choose God. Because anything else and anyone else will lead to failure, death, and curse. Period. And yet we're like constantly, you know, what did Einstein say? Uh, we're doing the same thing over and over again and we expect a different result. The definition of insanity? We're insane. We do the same thing again and again and we expect something different to happen. As if putting a fork in the electric socket for the 15th time won't hurt. But yet we do that metaphorically all the time. Some of us did it literally when we were younger. I did. It answers why I'm so weird. Um, let's continue back to our story with David for a moment. Now David crept up secretly, and he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards David's conscience was stricken, because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And so he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do any such thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. May I never lift my hands against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. And with these words, David restrained his men. He did not let them rise up against Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Um, a couple things I want to highlight from this text real quick. When David cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, we are clearly invoking back a few chapters before this. When Saul was given a test, by God, and he failed. And Samuel comes and says, God is taking the kingdom from you. And so Saul's on his knees, and he's grabbing, he grabs Samuel's robe, and a piece of Samuel's robe rips off. And so Samuel turns around, and he prophesies to Saul and says, 
as you have taken, as you have ripped a piece of my robe um, off of me, so God is going to rip the kingdom away from you and give it to another who is more deserving. So this is clearly foreshadowing that prophecy from, from Samuel some ten chapters before. Um, and another thing, like the Lord's anointed, like you look this up in some kind of Hebrew dictionary, that word anointed is the word Messiah. Okay? I would argue little M Messiah, not capital M Jesus Messiah, but the Lord's anointed, the Lord's chosen one. It is a shadow of what the definition of Messiah would be. So it's interesting. Um, and so why is David's conscience stricken? Think about this, right? The test is before David. He has the opportunity to kill King Saul. His men want him to, because in their mind, Saul's death would bring David life, a life where he is the anointed king, and everyone loves and obeys him, the way that God promised would happen. They would be trading caves of filth and bathroom and, and for palaces and riches. It would be quite the step up from a cave to a palace. And they want him to do it, right? His death will bring us a better life. And God did promise that to David, that he would be king. But is it now? Is this what God was talking about? Was this the moment? David was a man after God's own heart. That's why his conscience was sensitive on the matter. He knew what God's will was, but he also knew the timing wasn't right. Are we that close to God? Are we in his word? Do we know his voice so clearly that when we see an opportunity that we think is from God, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But are we going to trust his timing for it? Maybe God has given you a vision for some career or for some relationship or some whatever, but is this the moment that God wants you to take that step? It doesn't hurt for a moment to stop and ask that question instead of just leaping in because David was a man after God's heart. He knew the voice of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about some of these comparisons, please. See, not trusting God's timing, David's men believe that, again, the king's death would bring a better life for David and themselves. Death would bring life. doesn't usually work out that way. Throwing back to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve believed that a better life awaited them if they just ate the fruit, that God was holding out on them. But what they harvested was death. That which they thought would bring them life and something better, the result was death. Death for them, death for their children, death for the whole world. And death has been the ultimate curse before humanity ever since. Contrast to these, trusting God's faithfulness, David was merciful towards Saul. And eventually David did receive the things that God had promised. He did receive the palace. He did get the crown. He did get the kingdom. He did get all of those things. And he didn't have to kill Saul to do it. He let God take care of Saul. And David waited. In fact, twice, right? Uh, if you go to chapter 26, um, Saul is asleep in his camp and all of his guards are asleep, even the ones on, on guard duty. They're all asleep. And David and a couple of his boys roll in. They go into Saul's tent. Saul is completely asleep. There's a spear right there by Saul's bed. He could very easily pick it up and kill Saul, and he doesn't. Instead, he takes his water jug, and he takes his spear, and he leaves, and he goes to the other side of a 
kind of a ravine, and there's a little chasm between them. And he calls out, hey, guys, wake up. You guys, you guys are terrible as guards. I just came in and took the stuff of your king. You guys should all be fired. One of my favorite movies is uh, Secondhand Lion. Okay? It's a great movie. Um, in one of the, so if you've never seen it, there's these two old World War II veterans, and they're, they're telling their grandson or nephew or whatever about their adventures back in the war in Africa. And the one of them falls in love with this um, Arabian princess. And there's this sheik who loves her too. And so she runs off with the American, and the sheik is mad, and he's coming after her. And so he goes into the palace, and he holds a sword to the sheik's throat. The sheik wakes up knowing that he could die at any moment. And instead, he, he tosses the sword to the sheik, and he gives him his life. He doesn't want him to just kill him. He wants to beat him honorably in battle. So they have a sword fight, and then he defeats him a second time. And for the second time, he's holding a sword to the sheik's throat, right? And he says to him this really cool line in the movie. It's my favorite line in the whole movie. He says, twice I have held your life in my hand, and twice I have given it back to you. That is exactly what we have here with Saul and David. Twice David had Saul's life in his hands, and twice he gave it back to him because he was merciful. He was trusting that God would deliver him. He would not raise his sword against the Lord's anointed, no matter how corrupt Saul had become. David chose life, and he spared Saul from death twice. Trusting God's will, the son of David, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, he was willing to lay down his life. He died on a cross. So now all who call on his name shall live. He reversed the curse of sin and death. He passed the test that you and I never could because he was in the garden and he said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. When you and I, in that same situation, will almost always, no, always will say, my will be done, not yours. Adam and Eve did a thing that they thought would bring life and it brought death. David's men thought that if they killed him, they could get a better life. David was willing to forego Saul's death in order to wait on a better life. And here's Jesus Christ who takes it one step further. He lays down his own life. He doesn't take another life. He doesn't spare a life. He lays down his own life of his own volition, of his own free will. And he, will, he who laid it down also has the power to take it up. And so his death now brings him back to life and brings us back to life with him. We who died with Christ shall be raised with him, as the Apostle Paul said. He reverses the curse of sin and death that Adam and Eve brought into this world. That's why he is the last Adam. As we wrap things up, I, I want you to think about this right now. Where are you? Have you just come out of a test? Are you in the middle of one? Are you going to be going into one? Because you are. You will be. If not yesterday or today, then most assuredly tomorrow, you will be confronted with a test. It may not be on the scale of you know, damning all humanity by eating from the forbidden tree, or by killing your enemy to better yourself. I certainly hope not. Um, 
but you will be presented with a test. What will you choose? Will you choose to do it your way, or will you wait on God? Will you trust his timing and his goodness, that he is not a killjoy, that he has what's best for you, and that sometimes the answer to his prayers aren't just yes or no, that sometimes the answers to his prayers are wait. And I know that is hard, especially in this generation, when everything is so instantaneous, when, when everything is literally just microseconds at our fingertips, that waiting is incredibly hard. And we adults, were better at hiding it than the kids. They might get impatient and throw a tamp, tenture, tamp, temper tantrum and jump up and down and be angry when they don't get their way. When in reality, we're doing the same thing on the inside. We just got better at hiding it as we got older. Most of the time. Because we want it the way we want it, and we want it now. Are you going to trust God that he has what's best in mind for you? Or are you going to do it on your own again and have it fail again? And cause more suffering and more hurt to your relationships, to your career, to your hopes, to your dreams? Or are you going to trust and wait on God? I want to leave you with two verses to encourage you to do it in God's timing. If you want to bring those up, please. Verse 1 says, James 1.12, it was our memory verse this morning, right? Blessed, blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. The first verse I memorized on the night that I got saved as a believer. It's, it's been a very important verse in my life. The crown of life there, he's, he's pulling from the ancient Olympics because they would give you a, a crown, a wreath, right, when you won. So if you want to substitute that for modern Olympics, you could say he's going to give you the gold medal of life if you endure the test, if you trust God, that he has promised that he will do good. And lastly, from Moses, kind of the next chapter of what we read earlier, this is what he says in his kind of concluding marks to Joshua and the rest. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. You have a God who loves you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you but you need to trust him, right? That is the very definition of faith. It is trust, right? It is believing loyalty. I am loyal to Yahweh. I am loyal to Christ. And I believe in his goodness, and I trust in his goodness. Do you have that believing loyalty? Do you have that trust? Do you have that faith? Jesus, I pray that the words of that song, Lord, we sung earlier, that all we have is Christ and that all we need would be Christ. Lord God, that we trust you. 
that even if things don't work out the way we want, God, we know that you are good. That, Lord, you have the right things in mind for us. May we be faithful to that, Lord Jesus. May we follow your example, God. May you help us, Lord God, where our flesh fails constantly, Lord Jesus. We have something else in us, though. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit of God who leads us and guides us. If we are in Christ, we are a new creation. That is what it means to be a Christian. The Holy Spirit living inside of you, making you new, making you, making us like Christ. And may we choose to be like Christ, Lord, to put your will first and our will second. As John the Baptist said, may we decrease and may Jesus increase. Lord, be with us as we go from this place. Be with Pastor Jim as he travels back from Utah, Lord. May all the things we say and do this week, God, bring your name glory. In your name we ask. Amen.